Welcome to EE Times On Air. I'm David Finch. We return from our mid-season break with a pair of deep dives, one into smart meters. So I would say that the standard products in metrology have come around very well in the last few years. The other into musical innovation. Me and Danny both set out to do something, I guess, uncompromising. It's a high-voltage episode, delivered in three phases, exploring what's current in art and engineering. Powerful stuff. And if you're not offended by cheap puns, stick around. It is estimated that uh, before the end of 2018, an incremental 94 million smart electricity meters will be added to electrical grids around the world. The positive growth projected over the next several years makes smart metering an attractive market for industrial OEMs, component manufacturers, and software providers. What makes them attractive to people like me is the degree of sophistication one discovers beneath the surface. Let's face it, utility meters are not glamorous items. Most of us don't become distracted in the car thinking about electricity meters. We've always regarded them as the doohickeys that sit on the side of our house collecting and logging our kilowatt hours consumption, silently judging us for leaving the hallway lights on, and ratting us out to the utility companies every month. We haven't been giving these gems the proper credit. Turns out, there's a lot going on inside today's energy meters. As usual, I didn't come to learn this on my own, but by talking to people who are way smarter than I'll ever be. People like Daniel Cooley, Senior Vice President and General Manager of IoT Products at Silicon Labs. Earlier this season, Daniel and I chatted about smart cities, a conversation that he framed entirely with some remarks on smart meter technology. One of the applications that a lot of people may not realize has gone very mainstream is smart metering. And that market has really done a transition over the past 20 years where people were trying to eliminate um, maintenance crews rolling around in trucks, carrying clipboards, coming out and reading meters into a more automated process. And it drove a big wave of innovation around how to connect products in big networks that needed to be reliable. He then went on to explain some of the technological challenges posed to smart meter designers early in the transformation of these systems and how addressing those challenges drove innovation enabling today's smart energy and municipality infrastructures. Billing systems were maintained on these things, so there's money that changes hands. There was opportunity for theft on the meters, for electricity, for water, for gas, or other utilities. In some applications, these meters weren't powered. You know, a water meter does not have electrical uh, mains lines to it, so you have to do this all this wireless technology on a battery that may have to last mm. 10 to 20 years. So it drove a tremendous amount of innovation around the end node devices, the meters themselves, the network to connect those devices to infrastructure, and then the main maintenance reliability to secure it all, to protect the consumers. I hadn't been prepared to dive into smart metering with Daniel, so I shifted the conversation back to smart cities and continued with the interview. Later in the season, I sat down with Brian Mathias Hodge, chief scientist at National Renewable Energy Laboratory, to discuss smart grid deployments. And about halfway through that conversation, I found myself talking to another intellectual authority on metrology without any notes or any benchtop experience to back me up. The biggest thing that's changing in demand forecasting is now you have all this behind the meter generation. So the distributed PV on my rooftop, for example. Now, Excel doesn't know what's going on with that. It doesn't know 
if that's producing, if that's not going to produce. And so incorporating the behind the meter generation into the demand forecast, because the utility only sees that essentially as negative load. And so that's a huge area of research right now. In fact, uh, we're getting started. NREL is involved in two different projects uh, funded by the Department of Energy on solar forecasting that have a large behind the meter forecasting component to them. Yeah, I stepped in that one. I should have seen it coming. You know, shame on me for inquiring about energy demand forecasting without considering the point of measurement that informs it, right? Uh, rather than dodging the topic, though, I decided to go there with him. And I'm glad I did, because I gained a little more perspective into how utility companies might build more reliable demand forecast models. The current demand forecasting models are largely uh, machine learning, neural nets, things like that. So they require lots of training data and now the training data isn't so useful because the system's changing. And so you have to build on top of that. And you want to be able to take a couple measurements and then be able to predict what's happening with the rest of it through modeling. Two episodes into the season and twice I'd had to field a line drive into smart metering. So I reached out to an old friend from my days as an audio applications engineer at ST Microelectronics. Vipin Botra was one of my go-to people whenever I needed help powering things, uh, integrating a switch mode power supply into a Class D audio circuit, for example. Currently, he is Market Development Director for Industrial Applications at ST Microelectronics. He joins me now to help make me a little bit smarter about smart metering. And um, Vipin, I want to start off with a super basic question, uh, lest I get ahead of myself. And the question is this. What are the measurement imperatives in today's electricity meters? Is it, um, is it simply a matter of power consumption or are there other factors that are being considered being measured, that sort of thing? Absolutely, absolutely. So um, one of the, the, let's say, key developments that has been going on for the last few years is emphasis on the accuracy and emphasis on power quality measurement. So accuracy is very simple, right? If your meter is not accurate, regulatory bodies will ask to charge the consumer what your meter is, uh, you know, in the bottom end of your error band, for example. Sure. Right? So let's say that you have a meter that is 95% accurate. So you have to pretty much give 105 kilowatt hour to charge 100 kilowatt hour to the consumer. So meter makers or the utility companies are forced to have more and more accurate meter uh, in order to make sure that they charge the consumers correctly. Sure. Now, as a consumer, I would not worry too much if it's a 0.1% accurate meter or a 0.5% accurate meter. But <laughs> right. the trend, and this is this is very real, is that meter manufacturers and utility companies are going extra mile quite a bit to improve the accuracy in the meter. And I think today the gold standard is 0.2% accurate meter. This is good news, by the way, because I do have an uncle. So, uh, you know, budget conscious, he, he would care about the 2%, 0.2%. Right. <laughs> I, I won't say which uncle, but I have one. Go ahead. Good. So, so that's, uh, I think that's the one piece. And that 0.2% that accuracy uh, leads to a lot of technological innovation, if I can say that. Absolutely. Because yeah. uh, you have 
four or five measurement elements and you have to basically add the inaccuracy of all of them to arrive at a total of 0.2%. Sure. So so if you think about that you need to buy resistors that are 0.1% accurate or 0.05% accurate, mm. you have to have your sigma delta input uh, analog A to D uh, that is uh, have to have an offset that is in you know millivolt range right and all of these starts adding up cost and also it uh, requires let's say engineering expertise in the meter manufacturer to achieve those level of performance so that's kind of one piece of uh, metering now second i was talking about metrology second i was talking about is power quality so when it comes to three phase meter okay when it comes to higher power um, usage environment which is mostly three phase or some in some cases higher voltage measuring energy accurately is not enough the the characteristics of the load needs to be known what is the power factor even measuring accuracy of different uh, harmonics of the input current is also uh, let's say demanded by utility companies oh really even the harmonics yes even the harmonics so you would be basically given a, let's say, input current waveform with different level of harmonics, and you have to basically measure that in the meter to prove that your meter meets their requirement. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so three-phase meters uh, raise the challenge to a whole new level. Yeah, absolutely. And and I can say that, I mean, three-phase meters are basically the driving force of the technology. And you can say that the one phase is kind of subset of it. But then the cost in three-phase meters is not that big of a deal because you're looking at a very high demanding application, very high performance premium application where you can afford to put expensive components. So the challenges in the one-phase meter is to how to have best of what you have achieved in three-phase meter, but at the minimum cost. What are we doing upstream with that information? Why are we measuring it? Good question. Very good question. So power factor is characteristics of the load. So utility is providing you a voltage source and it is uh, the load that define if the current is in phase with the voltage or not. Yep. And that's basically what the power factor is, is how much your current is out of phase from the voltage source, okay? Sure. So power factor is a function of load. If uh, you have a load such as your washing machine in your house, which is a inductive load, you will have a lagging current. In other words, your current phase will be lagging to the voltage phase and you will have a power factor that will be less than one. So lower power factor means if let's say your power factor is down by 10%, mm -hmm. utility have to deliver 10% more current for the same amount of kilowatt hour that they're delivering to you. Okay. That's the impact of power factor, right? So if the power factor is low, that means they have to deliver more current and more current means more generation cost and more distribution cost. And that's the impact of poor quality load, if I can say it that way. The information that they use for the most part is to police, if I can use it that way, mm -hmm. and provide differential pricing. So utility companies will provide incentives to the businesses or disincentives in terms of price and variable cost to improve the power quality. And then, so these businesses then go to the, say, the GEs of the world and they say, all mm -hmm. right, we use a lot of your motors. 
and mm -hmm. we need to improve this. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. So in some cases, they're used, they're forced to use power quality improvements. So basically, they are forced to use some kind of a converter in between uh, that would basically help them improve the power quality. Okay. Um, so now we talked about inductive load that has have lagging uh, power factor. Then there are some applications that have leading power factor. So all, uh, let's say, low power adapters or any power supply that is a capacitor at the front end, they will have a leading power factor. So in a way, a lagging power factor load and a leading power factor load would compensate each other. But in real life, it doesn't happen because imagine that there is a smelter doing a steel production. They're going to use all inductive motors for mm. the most part. They're, they are not going to have maybe a few PCs here or there that will not make any dent. So typically what happens is that you will have in those kind of environments uh, more lagging load than leading load. Mm -hmm. Now, power factor is one piece of power quality. Second is harmonic distortion. So what is harmonic distortion? In a nutshell, harmonic distortion is that when the utility delivers the power to you and it's a sinusoidal power. So imagine that it's a power that goes from zero degree to 90 degree and it goes all the way up and come down. If you are drawing power only for a certain portion of that whole waveform in each cycle and you are not drawing any power in let's say some portion of the cycle, basically you are not using the fully deployed capacity of power delivery to you. So imagine that you are only drawing power from let's say 30% of the time and then another 60% of the time your current input current is completely zero. And, and that could happen yeah. in certain types of loads. Uh, but that's a very simplistic example of harmonic distortion. So what that does is that you are drawing current in certain harmonics more and certain harmonics less and you are creating a distortion in the input current that you are drawing. That distortion in the end would go back and have an impact on the power quality to the other users that are using the electricity. So it will mm, have an overall impact right. on the efficiency of the grid. I mean, if you think of it uh, for utility companies, if they have, let's say, 100 megawatt source, and uh, if all of their consumers start degrading power factor by 10%, now they need to add 10 megawatt uh, source uh, of electricity, right? And that infrastructure cost is a huge cost. So once you know the power quality, then you can define incentives, disincentives. You can define the measures that needs to be taken to improve the power quality. You can use that information to go back and uh, use regulations. So for example, in Europe, uh, most of the high-end washers and dryers don't run on inductive motor load. They have active power factor correction at the front end because that is what utilities are mandating there. So power quality is a very important element of this smart grid. And knowing the, the power quality, knowing uh, what is each consumer's consumption of power quality, knowing the time element when the power quality is going bad, uh, and deploying variable cost and incentives for improving power quality is what the smart grid is about. How are companies leveraging semiconductors are these ASICs? Mm -hmm. Are they application-specific standard products, SOCs? Good question. In fact, semiconductors are at the core of all of these evolutions. Mm. Okay. 
because uh, for communication, I mean, it, let's say in communication, there is an infrastructure and cloud connectivity part of it. But outside of that, everything basically semiconductor is core of it. So let's address three pieces of the meter and how they are done. When it comes to uh, the power board that we talked about, which is basically auxiliary power for the meter, for the most part, they are application-specific standard products. So these are off-the-shelf products uh, uh, that are you know, available from uh, my company, ST, and also many of our competitors. Sure. And then I think the trend there is to have higher and higher voltage devices so that you can have a reliable meter that can run over a wide range of voltages without the need of uh, uh, you know, using very high voltage input expensive protection devices and so forth. Mm -hmm. So going higher and higher in voltage, having higher level of robustness, having power conversion technologies that are more robust and more, uh, let's say, less susceptible to the power line noise is the trend in the power conversion. Okay. And there's a lot of product development going on in that area. Second piece is metering. So metering, as I said, is that measuring of power quality is definitely an important piece on top of the accuracy of the uh, measurement itself. And both of these are requiring, um, let's say, a lot of development. Okay. And um, I would say that most of the meter manufacturers today uh, use standard product. And part of the reason is that they get economy of scale from the standard products. Sure. Um, if they were to combine everything in one SOC or uh, one big uh, ASIC that takes care of communication, some power conversion, metrology together, uh, the development cost is huge. And to amortize over just their volume alone uh, would not make economic sense in most cases. And it leads to far less flexibility in your design. Exactly. So I would say that the standard products in metrology have come around very well in the last few years. So today, for example, ST offers products that can do 0.1% accuracy so that the meter manufacturers can guarantee 0.2% accuracy to their end users. And these are standalone Sigma Delta converters with the DSP. I think one of the trends that is going on in that area is using isolation barriers. So using isolation technologies built into Sigma Delta converter so that you can read these readings in the other side, meaning low voltage side where the communication boards are. Are you referring to like CMOS isolation or optical? Optical. Mm, okay. Um, there are other isolation technologies, but optical is the cheapest and that's what it is. So yep. uh, I think this is more of an architectural level differences than anything else. Okay, sure. Uh, because what you are reading the energy, you are reading at the line voltage and that's called hot side, right? Or high side, whatever you call it, hot or high. Mm-hmm. But the information that you get out of that in the end has to be used with the communication side, which could be a low side. And to bring that information on the other side, you need to go through the isolation barrier. And there are multiple ways you can go across the isolation barrier. And there are multiple points where you can make the isolation. And the trend now is that have the isolation right at the measurement sigma delta converter itself so that you have those measurement points on the hard side and everything else, your microcontroller, your DSP, everything on the 
low voltage side. I see. Okay. So that's the kind of trend that is going on in in metrology. And how how old is this, or you know, how young or new is this technology, this this uh, isolation technology trend in this specific application? So discrete isolators or opto isolator have been around for a long time. Right. And that has been a traditional approach but it takes a lot of component and it's a lot more expensive. Mm-hmm. So uh, defining um, sigma delta converters, defining DSP, defining microcontrollers that are fit for this environment is a new thing. And I would say maybe recently in the last one to two years is what this is happening. So we can, we can do this processing on, say, a DSP or an ARM, possibly Cortex, a mm-hmm. kind of uh, architecture? We don't need FPGAs? No, no, no. So the architecture in the low-end meters today doesn't even go for ARM A7 core. A, a Cortex-M4 is good enough for most applications um, because so the architecture that you would see today would have a metrology piece, then there's a DSP for calculation of metering information, mm-hmm. and then there's a microcontroller, which could be typically F4 microcontroller. That's brilliant. Fantastic. So something yeah. like an STM32 F4. F4, yeah. And that's the, the low end of the meter. Even mm. you go at a very high end, you don't really need A7. Now, you might need A7 for communication and other pieces of it, but you would definitely not need it for the metrology portion. Of it. But these are these are very obtainable products. These are very obtainable products. Sure. But th- I'm not saying that all the meter manufacturers use 100% standard products. There right. are some meter manufacturers that is still go SOCs or you know custom ASICs and things like that. Uh, but I would say that the majority of the usage around the world is based on application-specific standard products. Um, keep in mind that these devices, they are connected right very close to the transformer. Compare that with, let's say, you have a printer in your house. Before the power is delivered to that printer, the line is perhaps running 20 meters or 50 meters somewhere from the transformer, right? And that line plays a very important role in damping power line noise that goes to the equipment. Sure. So from that perspective, if you look at the meter, um, between meter and the the source, which is the transformer, uh, the impedance is very, very small. And any noise that is in the power line uh, goes fully inside the meter itself. So meters, I would say, are subjected to most harsh power conversion challenge from that perspective. Even a 240 volt or 120 volt meter that you would have, by the way, there is no 120, like even a 240 volt meter that you have, uh, would have to be designed for a very, very high voltage for a short duration of time. Sure. And one way to do is to have clampers, have the protection devices on the input and then do your normal regular power supply. But that becomes very expensive and bulky and also thermally challenging. So one of the trends that is happening is that why not have a power supply that is able to withstand much higher voltage so that you can do with production uh, with the protection at the front end and basically deal with the power line transient directly without worrying about their impact. Exactly. And what kind of voltages are we talking about here? Voltages we are talking about here is, um, I mean, we have devices that are 1,200 volt. We have seen customers using 1,500 volt MOSFET plus controller. Mm. Uh, We are launching 1,700 volt devices. So that's basically, you know, 
a very broad range. And so the topologies uh, for the conversion, anything special mm-hmm. there? So uh, typically it's a flyback power supply, uh, sometimes isolated, sometimes non-isolated. And uh, standard power supply from a power conversion topology point of view. There's one more small, uh, very important nuance, which is the noise that comes from a power supply could have an impact on your measurement quality. Sure. And uh, as you, as we talked about before, measurement quality is a very, very important factor in the meter design. So there are some tricks and techniques that are implemented in the power conversion topologies that takes care of the noise. In other words, they uh, meter manufacturers are not too worried about 1% or 5% efficiency in the power conversion so much. But they are, number one, worried about protection, and number two, worried about the noise quality of the power supply. So there are design techniques that are implemented in terms of uh, you know design of the transformers, design of uh, the PWM, so that you have less noise. You know, that is really a science. That's that's not something that um, a generalist kind of sits down and says, oh, I'm going mm-hmm. to design a really great yes. switch mode power supply. There's, I mean, you have to know so much mm-hmm. about the, um, the magnetics. Right. It's a super specialized field. You're right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And ST is still providing and enabling that sort of design assistance uh, globally, right? Absolutely. Yes. I mean, ST is developing integrated products that go 1200 volt and beyond. Right, <laughs> right. And uh, here I am still playing around with 1.8 volt um, processors. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I always learn a lot when I when I talk to you. Um, anything else you wanted to bring up before we sign off? Uh, I think we covered quite a bit today, Dave. Yeah, Vipin, thank you so much for joining us and for uh, once again uh, doing my homework for me and making me smarter. Very good. (laughs) Nice talking to you, Dave. Thanks. Thank you. We'll talk soon. (laughs) Bye-bye. This is Danny Rabin from Marbin, and you're listening to EE Times On Air. decade ago, Israeli musicians Danny Rabin and Danny Markovich began something important, something rare nowadays, a completely uncharted, non-formulaic artistic venture driven by virtue. For decades, mainstream musicians have been creating records from part to whole, one track, one layer, one edit at a time. If they're lucky, people hear the record, and if they're really lucky, they'll have an opportunity to share that idea with live audiences who have never heard it before, except maybe on the polished recording, sort of like skipping beta testing and going straight to mass production. Rabin and Markovich, the founding duo of Marvin, take a decidedly different approach to product development, something very sincere and audience-minded. It's an approach hearkening back to an era of timeless recordings of timeless music. You'll hear from one of the Dannys, the guitarist, in just a minute. But first, listen to how saxophonist Danny Markovich tears into this improvised solo on a tune called Redline.
wanted to hear about more, so I invited Danny Rabin to talk improvisation and the language of music. If you're an engineer, you'll hear lots of parallels to effective product development. All right, Danny, welcome. So you're this uh, uh, brilliant, amazing, obviously, guitar player, musician, uh, artist, songwriter. Um, you know, there are there are people who are brilliant technicians who make really great stylists. Uh, mm -hmm. And then there are people who are brilliant technicians who are totally original. Like, you know, I'm kind of putting you in a category with like Pat Metheny, Django, and, and um, just the people that blow me away. And uh, like, I, I just wonder, does it, is it something where you set out to do something that wasn't proven before? A lot of it was so unintentional. Um, me and Danny both, uh, both set out to do something, I guess, uncompromising. There's two approaches you can take to making albums. One of them is more of the classic approach and the other one is more of what I'd consider like the commercial approach. So what has been done lately is people will make an album and then go promote it, right? You make a recording, that's your product, and then you go on tour to sell your product. Yep. That makes a lot of sense if you're selling, you know, shampoo or like, you know, a commodity, right? <laughs> right? But the one thing that they don't tell you, it's like you're recording music that you can't really play, right? It's like you just figured out what it is. Right. And your first step is to make this carbon copy of it, right. like before it's been tested against reality. Mm, yeah. So, I mean, there is something innately backwards about that process. If you look at a Duke Ellington record, they played at the Savoy for like six month contract playing these arrangements before they got in the studio. Like, a friend, you know, they get sure. in, they bang it out in one take. You know, it sounds amazing. It lasts for a hundred years. Right. You know, it means something. And a lot of things, uh, there's almost like kind of like a Darwinistic thing that happens to your music when you play it in front of people. And that's not because, you know, you, you gauge what you do based on, on strangers' reactions, but it makes you self-conscious in a way that's vital. And it forces you to really confront the things that don't work that in a, in a sterile environment you might imagine that are going great. If it's a chord progression, you know, a unison line, whatever. So certain things start feeling really bad in front of people. And I can't mm. even tell you, the like for us, the process after Last Chapter of Dreaming became write the music, tour with it for a year, make an album that's a summary like we, for us to take an album is a, like, you know, Israeli jazz took two days, you know, <laughs> Goatman took one day, you know, it's like Holy aggressive smokes. hippies took two, because we knew how to play the music. Like, you know, after two or three takes, there's no reason to keep going. When people talk about improvisation and music that has compartments in it for improvisation, which is what we do and what jazz does, the jazz form, um, they think about it in a way that's a little bit untrue, which is when something is completely new, when you're playing over a chord progression for the first time, if you take the first 30 nights you solo, yeah, you might play really, really fundamentally different solos. But that's not desirable in the medium to long run because what happens, you'll start finding things that work. And then they'll kind of clump up 
mm. right? That, that you'll have a clump, a section of the solo, a part of the form that you kind of, you're doing that thing you do. Now there's flexibility inside it, mm-hmm. but it's not a pure improvisation anymore. It's kind of like an idea you're familiar. It's the same way if you talk about politics, you know, you start reading some, I don't know, Burke and Payne and like, you know, and Adam Smith and you start having, you know, kind of those ideas will start bunching up. Things about them will start being your opinion, right? Right. And those opinions exist in a flexible kind of space. And the more you talk about them, maybe the more formed they become. But what happens is like after you play 100 or 200, like Redline is a good example for a song we play at every show. So Mm -hmm. I think I might've played like a five minute solo on Redline 1200 times. Right. You know, so I know C. Dorian pretty well by now, you know, <laughs> right. and, and, and I've had like whole months when I was doing like these clumps that were very similar to each other. And then those start getting improvised and reshuffled. So it's like the units you work with grow and grow, you know, and, and the freedom starts, you know, the way that like your playing gets better, it gets massaged in different places in the form. It's, it's hard to explain, but like, you know, it's, it's tough to put together like the solo that will go to the record in an improvised context because it has to kind of be a summary of the best you can do. Um, you know, when, so I, I grew up on saxophone personally. I was never mm-hmm. at the Danny level, but uh, like I, one of the things I struggled with improvisation was in order to get to where I could speak my own ideas and voice my own ideas, I felt like I had to learn how to say what people before me had said. And because they weren't my words, nothing like stuck. It didn't resonate Mm. with me. So you're building a language, right? As you're improvising? Well, I think the important thing, if you really want to understand improvisation and language is a perfect analogy, is to understand the resolution of the word. And what I mean by that is if you think about music like speaking and your goal is to be fluent, you got to ask yourself, what's the correct place to start? So just like you, you teach a baby, right? A baby starts with the resolution of the word, not the resolution of grammar and not the resolution of the sentence. Mm. And what you're saying is that to understand tradition, you have to understand the ideas of the people that came before you. And I think... That's true that you have to understand it. You don't have to recite it. Mm. So, and, and it's hard in music for people to understand the resolution of the musical word because it's very tempting, especially if techie people listen to this. I teach a lot of computer engineers and I got to tell you something. You geeks think too much. Uh, <laughs> Guilty. Yeah. I mean, the idea that you can make this like super list and just break everything down before you start engaging with the material is false. Mm. It's like saying that if I have like, it's like, you know, they're, they're just showing up. I see it in lessons all the time. It's like, listen, I'm not like the other babies. I'm a super smart baby. I don't know how to speak, <laughs> but if you just break down grammar, I'll put this whole thing together. And I'm like, you, my friend, are a stupid baby, you know, because that's not how babies learn. It's, and, and, 
your hubris is, has been uh, a deterrent for you to learn something that's completely attainable for anybody because you refuse to do the work. You want your mind to draw you a picture of how all the pieces fit before you actually get your feet wet. Yes, exactly. And, and, and that, that is precisely why these people always stay in square one because you have to pragmatically make the sounds and then afterwards go back and categorize them. But the analytical process can't work without the physical process taking over first. And that's just where they all get stuck. I was like a, a Michael Brecker freak. <laughs> and yeah. like I started with Brecker and then everybody was telling me like, well, there's a lot of people before him. And so I had to go all the way back to like bebop and all that stuff. But um, there's a lot before bebop. There was a lot. <laughs> exactly. Like where would I even begin? But what I started doing with Brecker stuff was, all right, fine. I'm just going to transcribe it. And I would sit there a measure at a time and I would, it may, might take me a month to get all the way through it, but I'd be like, all right, I'm pretty sure this is it. And then I would go back and try to reverse engineer. Why does he hit this particular run? And there's no change under it, but mm -hmm. his, his entire run shifts up like a half step. And I'm like, I don't understand why he does that. It's because I was uh, thinking too much, right? No, it's because, I mean, I'm a big Brecker fan too, and that's a completely legit thing to do once you understand the language of music, right? Mm. So what I'm saying is, first of all, Brecker played his ass off with, you know, I guess partial understanding of that. Like when you hear him talk, I mean, he's, I think, one of the greatest saxophone players that ever lived. I'm not sure how together his ability to articulate everything he was doing was. Mm. Um but I guess the way I would think about what you are doing that would be wrong, it's like the Aristotelian kind of notion of like virtue study, like how he always poses like this question, how do you become virtuous? Mm. And the way I see it correlating to this, it's like, well, yeah, Michael Brecker did all these amazing things. But if the tape got erased and he had to play another solo five minutes later, right? that solo you were studying would have been completely different, would have had different stuff, but would have been just as good. Mm. Same with Charlie Parker, same with John Coltrane. So we learned something from the particular solo, from diving in and breaking down what they're doing, what scale he's using against what chord and what kind of rhythms he's playing and what kind of like, you know, articulations he's using. But somehow... That's not the interesting thing because nothing is hiding in the particular example mm. that could be extrapolated. What we want is to go over the kind of thinking that allows him to improvise freely in the language, right? We can't acquire virtue by just breaking apart what somebody does. All we can do is like maybe you know, categorize things. Like theory is giving names to sounds. What you were doing is you were trying to have a filing system that was efficient with a limited understanding of what he was doing. But, you know, a better way to approach that is to just put it like this. The one thing we know for sure about Michael Brecker is that he didn't become Michael Brecker by studying Michael Brecker solos. Right. Right. Right? It's like, so that, that's, that's something that's like very logical. Right. So if you want to be like him, right, it's different to want to be influenced by him and to ask yourself, how does he think about this stuff? And I see this all the time. I mean, I don't know how aware you are of like my Facebook 
live feed, but like I teach guitar for free on Facebook, like for the Marvin fans for an hour a day. And I get to, I would say 7,000 people on average per day. Yep just talking about, you know, exactly this kind of discussion. And the hardest thing for people to do is to test the way they practice against reality. It means I think a certain way when I play, right? Uh, it sounds a certain way. Michael Brecker thinks a certain way when he plays. It sounds a certain way. Do I sound like Michael Brecker? No. So we probably think about things pretty differently. Right. And then you have to start like constructing a sort of like a kind of theory being like, how does Michael Brecker think? And then you assume things. And a lot of times you're wrong, but like this process is what allows you to become you over time. And then you measure it against reality. You record yourself, you play with people, you see what happens. Yep. And the whole idea is to just get into like a place where you can believe something, like make some sort of decisions about how people must think, uh, learn the language, and then see how, see what happens, see how you play it, see if you got any better. Uh, the, the other thing I will say is like when you acquire technique, which is something that's often ignored nowadays, mm. you have no idea how much faster it makes that process. Like for me, I mean, I sit with like, you know, the people that listen to me live, I pull some stuff off Spotify, like a Charlie Parker solo or Michael Brecker solo that I've never heard before or, you know, heard and never learned before. And I'll just learn it in front of them, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I'm not ashamed. It takes me a few minutes to get a lick, but it's like, you know, for them, it probably would take, you know, some of them days. Absolutely. But it's like, for me, it's like, I, I can play 16th notes. You know what I mean? I know I can. I can figure out a fingering that works for most licks. Some things are impossible. I skip them. Or some things like I, I hear and I'm like, wow, that would take me like a week to get together. So not now. But most of the music I hear, I can play fairly quickly. And I'm... You know, I'll tell you this, it's like a lot of people now approach me and I see the number one question, which keeps blowing my mind, you know, it's, it's like, what should I practice? <laughs> right. It's like, you know, what do I, what, what's your practice routine? And it's like, <laughs> it feels to me like it's blind people going to the gym, asking like huge bodybuilders, it's like, what can, what should I lift? Should I lift what you lift? It's like, no, dude, <laughs> it's like, right. that's, you're not there. You know what I mean? It's like, totally. I, it's like, where am I? I was like, I don't know, like lift something light. Right. You know, <laughs> see if you like it, like do anything. There's a room full of weights, lift like what you can, right. but you know, just get into it somehow. Do, and, yeah. and by the way, your brain immediately rewards you if you're lifting the right thing and you're doing the right activity, right? Yeah. I mean, but it's like, it's so easy when you're starting, like literally do anything. Yeah. Just get into it. Yeah. Lift anything in the room. <laughs> you know what? Just I Just like don't break your back to where you're never coming back and you're like sure. you're like musically crippled and <laughs> I don't by the way, I totally crippled myself musically because I was obsessed with at what point am I gonna be as good as some of these guys and I just stopped playing it. It blew yeah, it just yeah, blew it's, me it's up. Yeah, yeah, you're like the skinny kid like looking at a poster of Arnold. Yes. Yes. Being like, what does Arnold lift? <laughs> I want to be Arnold. It's like <laughs> never works out. <laughs> well, I mean, it could work out if like you just start lifting what you what you're supposed to lift. But I'm saying practice doesn't always make perfect. Right. Exactly. It really it really depends on like you know what you're practicing and how you're practicing. And also for me, I, you know, we with Marvin, we keep going and doing these master classes in colleges. 
and schools and some teachers, saxophone teachers, who are obsessed practicers have been practicing longer than Charlie Parker has been alive. Mm. So mm. is it is only practicing correlated with greatness? No, absolutely not. It's a part of the story. But I suspect that, you know, that playing out live gigging is the arena where you get to test your hypothesis of what practice should be against reality. Absolutely. And and you got to bounce it back off just the real world. And the real world will correct you if you listen to it. The way I think about it, and I think like your, your listeners will appreciate it, when you take down music and, and your goal is to study it and you want to break it down to pieces, there are three pieces that the whole thing of music breaks into. And the way I would define music in general, it's organized sound. Mm -hmm. That's what we do. Like, I know you can appreciate the sound of the waves or the birds, mm -hmm. but that's not music. And sure, there's a debate to be had about that with a lot of very modern kind of thinkers. Right. But I would say that just like in painting or anything else, what we're interested in is a cognitive conscious being organizing the world of sound for us, right? That's what right. music, that's what music is. Right. And when you're organizing music, you got to break that into two parts, right? Or into three parts. Organizing is rhythm, right? All we, organizing means when things happen. You know, music, we paint on time. Artists paint in space, right? Mm. But rhythm is just when do I make the sounds? That's all it is. Yeah. Music breaks into, or not music, sorry, sound. We're organizing sound. Uh, sound breaks into two pieces. We have pitch, which is frequency, and timbre, which is overtone construction. Sure. Right? Sound color. So those are our realms of control as composers or as improvisers. So if you correlate the way music breaks down into English questions, rhythm or organization, right, is when things happen. Sure. Pitch is what happens. Timbre is how it happens. Nice. And if you can figure out when something happens, whatever that was, and how it happened, you can study it. And there's a language, right? So there's inefficient and efficient language for each one of these fields. Uh, the you know, the sound engineers sitting in the studio right now, they are really savvy with the language for how things happen. They can describe to you, like, you know, the amplitude of the note, like the, really a lot of things that have to do with the overtone construction, mm -hmm. with, you know, all the temporal language is really a part of the physics of, of music. For musicians, our language has to do with pitch and with rhythm. So... You could say, you know, listen to that thing that happened in, you know, three minutes, 15 seconds into the song. Mm -hmm. That's not very useful language for musicians. But what we do is we have this language to kind of zoom in the way you kind of toggle on your laptop into the music by using, you know, forms mm -hmm. or, you know, sections or bars or subdivisions. So I can zoom into a song by saying the A section. Yep. Right. If I'm playing all of me, that's that first, you know, that first eight measure section. And I'm saying in the A section, measure two, beat three, 
16th note three, right? Mm-hmm. It's like zooming in all the way. The language of music allows me to maneuver in my mind and just zoom in. All of harmony is just the relationships and the naming of 12 pitches, right? That's right. what can happen in Western music. I'm, not, I'm only talking about Western music. Sure. Um, and that's just, you know, equal temperament. Everything comes out of just the relationship of these 12 notes. But with all that said, you got to just learn how to play first. At the same time, you know, you got to be okay with where you are. I always think when I was, I went to Berkeley, Mm -hmm. I didn't like it very much, but I went there. Uh, But I would never play with people when I was a student. Why is that? Because I sounded terrible and Mm -hmm. I knew it. Mm -hmm. And also people I think didn't like to play with me because they were tripping like they were, they wanted to hallucinate that they're already fully formed musicians that sound great. Right. And I would just look around and be like that. We all sound like, I would be like, we sound bad. And they're like, no, we're playing with each other. You sound bad. <laughs> and, uh, right. but, but for me, you know, it's, uh, it's not good to go out there with something not ready. Yes, right. Absolutely. It's like, it's like, it's, but it's totally fine to sit at home and work on it. It's like, you know, you wouldn't accept it with an iPhone. You know, it's like, oh, this this thing is like 40% done. It's like you can't call and it doesn't log in, but you can zoom in. Th- it's like, how right. are you going to sell that? Exactly. You know what I mean? It's like, you just got to wait till it's ready. No, you're exactly right. And you're, we're talking about like content and theme, right? Like the you, what you need is to be somebody who can live the themes and your content then comes through it because the theme informs the content. I, by the way, uh, to my knowledge, I've never ever heard of any one of your classmates from Berkeley, but I have heard of you. So yeah, there, oh, there you go. go. If, if I could pinpoint what talent really is, I would say that it's the ability to look at the big picture and identify the details that really make it great. Mm. I think that we all tend to look at the same big pictures and I feel like we all get a similar emotional response, but some people, and I see this from teaching, some people don't have the ability to like really take a look at the high resolution questions and asking, well, okay, you feel a certain way from this song, but what are they doing? Yeah. Like to just break up and that, that, that requires some level of either intuitive understanding or analytical ability, which are both the same, you know, one of them is like your brain telling you, you know, giving you words and, and like a toolbox to break apart the big picture. And the other one is you just having the understanding without the words, but they're both the same thing. One of them just is, is something that you can walk backwards and forwards with. You know what I mean? Yep. And what this comes down to is whatever that is, whether it's music or um, art or even, you know, your computer engineers uh, who who have the same sort of talent, not in music, but to be able to look at a system and say, rather than I code things in Python because that's what I learned in college, they look at a system and they say, yeah, Python is actually probably going to be the most efficient language for this and here's why. And then they go and they develop the program. It's uh, it's you can't fake the understanding and you can't mm-hmm. fake the big picture vision. Yeah. Well, I don't know what Python is, but I'm sure you're right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, man, this is amazing. 
I, I could go on for days. I feel like I have to wrap this up actually because we're about to run out. Sure. Run out of studio time. But sure. Um, well, you're just you're just trying to blame me for it already. I see what you're doing. <laughs> Don't want to spend the dough for an extra studio hour. Spend, Throw the guitar. <laughs> spend the dough. <laughs> That's right. No, I'm uh, uh, um, but uh, yeah, yeah, you love economics. Tell me the economics of me sitting on the phone with you for another two hundred twenty-five dollars. Yeah. I'll send you a Thomas Sowell book. <laughs> Please do, um, dude. This is—I uh, don't know. I hope we get to do this like a lot. Yeah, um, yeah. Let's do it selfishly, right? I don't know if you got anything out of this, but I'm having the time of my life. <laughs> I'm having a good time. <laughs> nice, man. Cool. Uh, thank you so much for this. And what do I need to do to secure the rights to play like Volta and maybe some others that would accompany this conversation? Just play it. What could happen? <laughs> I could get sued. <laughs> By who? All right. Cool. By me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually. <laughs> um, yeah, play it. Definitely play it. All right, cool, cool. Man, thanks a lot, Danny. Are you playing? Uh... We're playing tonight at the Chopin Theater in Chicago. Okay. And then we have like two shows in December, I think, or three shows. And then uh, going on tour in January towards all over uh, the East Coast, south to Florida. And then we're doing Cruise to the Edge, which is uh, the cruise that, yes, books. Oh. Yeah, like all the prog <laughs> bands are going to be there. Nice. Uh, so, yeah, it's going to be interesting. Good. Again, selfishly, I hope you have another pretty aggressive tour schedule coming up yeah, in 2019. Yeah, we, will. we will for sure. Sweet. I'm becoming a groupie, so you'll probably see me more than one show. <laughs> awesome, dude. <laughs> cool. Thanks, Danny. Hey, you're very welcome. All right, man. See ya. Bye. Bye. This program is produced by Aspencore Studio. Thanks for listening.